welcome to The Author's Tale, a series of casual conversations with prominent New Zealand authors, presented by me, Stephanie Fruin. In earlier episodes, we've talked with Kathleen Gallagher, a Christchurch-based author, about her poetry, plays and films, and we started to discuss her most recent novel, Anangahua Gold. In particular, Heart is a reflection of Kathleen's personal journey of ancestral discovery. In this, our final episode with Kathleen, we discuss Anangahua Gold some more and how her trusting of her intuition guides her on to the next project. I think it's in the Māori and the Irish cultures mm. too, and maybe in, I don't know, the mm. Celtic, maybe in the Scottish, yeah. I don't know, but it's like that, um, you know, like I, I think even in the creed they say, I believe in all that is seen yeah. and unseen. unseen. Yeah, you know, and yeah. and when you greet people, you go tēnā koutou, that's to the people mm. here that are seen, mm. tēnā koutou to the unseen. Mm. You know, you're always, always referring to yeah. the seen and the unseen. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, like it's not... Mm. It's not split, and it's it's mm. you know, and it just is you know. And if somebody wants to turn up and tell me something, that I'm I can hear it, yeah. you know. Like, and I think it's really hard for people who don't have that awareness, or yeah. they haven't been brought up with that awareness, and they don't know how to how to they don't know how to learn it, yeah. you know, or how to just be you know how to be and just sit under a tree and, yeah. <laughs> and let the tree <laughs> speak to you, you yeah. know, like. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and. Trying to describe it to somebody else who's not, who hasn't been brought up, but it's it's quite a big jump mm. for them, you know. But it's also, um, it's a way of being that I think is necessary now, yeah. and I think that's the only way that we're actually going to get through where we are now. That we have to actually shift, like we have to this, we have to respect intuition mm. at such a level that's you yeah. know, by the West it hasn't been respected. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Let's have a listen to Kathleen reading her poem, Silencing the Hikoi, 1998. Her son Kieran was involved in organising this hikoi. For those of you who don't know what a hikoi is, it is a Māori term referring to a walk, a communal walk or march. Waimakariri and the hikoi. The hikoi of hope, 1998. People walked from Cape Reinga in the far north and from Bluff in the far south to Wellington to protest against the widening gap between the rich and the poor in New Zealand between 1987 and 1998. The walkers from Bluff cross the Waimakariri at dusk. The sky huge red, the sun, the rain, the 19 days burned in their faces, in their bones. This way of walking hollows out the soul, makes it wide open to the wind and sky. The soles of the feet cry into the land, this way of dying to those things that are irrelevant. This walking in trust, in prayer, from the tail of the fish to the tongue, from the heel of the waka to the prow, an opening up of the land of the people to the spirit. Everywhere the sound of shoe on gravel, on tar, on soft dry grass, carrying the pain of the shifting of wealth to a tiny minority in the space of 12 slim years. The increase in poverty of the great majority 
unable to afford a doctor, a dentist, the milk, the kids' shoes, the stamp on a letter to a friend in mourning. These are the places where the feet meet the ground and echo. This is the poverty talking, walking, rubbing against the dry, stony parts of the island, carrying the moans of the people upwards, outwards, across the islands, through the air, breaking the silence, flaming out like the sun beyond the Alps. So what's the next project? What do you think you'll be working on next? Um, yeah, probably another novel I've got to do. Yeah. Is it the um, is it the you know next in a series of? Is there is there is there <laughs> what happens after Nunghoko? The love story? Oh, that's what my cousin wants me to write. <laughs> he goes, I read this book from beginning to end, and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And he rings me up in the middle of the night and goes, Now I want you to write me the next bit. <laughs> when it comes to novels, he's from the coast. Yeah. Funny. When it comes to no- Nunghoko Gold. Earthquakes and and Butterflies. Those are my only two novels, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Because I only started doing novels recently because of Earthquakes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they're more recent. They're a more recent event in my life. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, isn't it, how they all kind of influence the other. Yeah, and the trouble is I sort of like, partly, because the way I see things, I sort of write, it's almost like I, it's like I see pictures. And so like I write, it's almost like a screenplay, like I'm... yeah. I sort of see these pictures like unfolding, and um, and I follow them. <laughs> so it's it, it's yeah, it, yeah yeah. So I don't know whether people, some people might find it hard to read or not, but it's um, yeah, it's interesting. Going back to this, this Anangahua Gold. Um, did you do a lot of research? I mean, obviously your family research that obviously influenced a lot of what happened, you know, within the novel. But when it came to the path that they took to cross the Southern Alps, uh, yeah, I read around it. Like, um, yeah, there's there's books I've got here. Yeah, um, there's the Tattooed Land, um, but there were books on those. There's the terra, you know, there's the crossing, yeah. and yeah, yeah, and yeah, I've yeah. I've walked a lot of it myself. Yes, yeah, because um, you're quite a, a keen mountain walker. Well, I was. Yeah, I haven't done so much, yeah. but I used to, I did a lot, um, yeah. especially in my twenties. I did lots of tramping. Um, yeah, but. Because that's the thing that, that strikes me is you cannot write that kind of book without the experience and the knowledge of place. that environment and that, that yeah. sense of place and just sense of, of surviving. Because you need to, it's not it's not an easy environment to be in. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really yeah, it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting how it how it comes through, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's. I suppose it's difficult, but it's. I don't know. It's. It, it's so. Um, so you probably wouldn't have thought of it. You know, like the, I don't the, think of it as difficult. Yeah, no, because yeah. It, because it's who you, you know. Because it's all part. It's of It's sort of inside you. my soul. You know, yeah, like it's yeah. not a sort of a mm. outside really. Like yeah. it's the sort of it's it's getting to know myself better when I walk up in those mountains. Yeah. Like it's sort of like, and it's like when I'm on the coast. Yeah. You know, and like, yeah, and I can just stay there and stay there and stay there. You know, I really can. But yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, Fine. yeah. But you're right. I mean, but it's it's the mountains. Yeah, it's that. Intimacy, and I imagine that for people when they came here, that some people would felt they would f- 
fall in love with them, and yeah. the mountains would fall in love with the people, yeah. and other people they would, they would, yeah. It, it, how could they? Yeah. What is this? What are these yeah. people doing? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Looking um, over, walking across the streets like Let's rejoin the characters of Anangahua Gold, Roreka and Murphy. Years have passed, and Murphy has been absorbed into the West Coast landscape and the colonial way of life. He's embraced the Māori heritage, and just as Kathleen's life has blended both her Irish and Māori ancestry, we witness the coming together of the two cultures in the love story of Raureka and Murphy. Chapter 36 Ahakoa tafiti terangi kataya Though distant the heavens can be reached. Ina nahua 1877. Heke and his faya leave the hotel and make their way along the track south to Reefton. Teague comes out of the barn where he has been feeding the horses. He walks across the track and takes a look at the store entrance and the hotel. He examines it from every angle to make sure all is in order. Then he walks to the bridge and checks the river. If it is muddy or clear, high or low. He casts a glance up the route north to Westport. His eyes are drawn to the road running south to Reefton. There are two people in the distance, well along the track towards Reefton. They are walking away from him. Teague identifies Heke. The person beside Heke is a woman. There is something about her he recognises. It is to do with the way she moves. It is an old memory. He rummages around inside himself for the memory to come to the surface. He sits down on a bench and watches her moving along the road in the far distance beside Heke. Heke is holding her arm. She must be his mother, thinks Teague. He sits there quietly for some time. She is older than Heke. She is straight-backed and she moves slowly, gracefully, He closes his eyes for a while and lets what will come to him. When he opens his eyes again, the two of them are further away, shrinking into the distance. He closes his eyes. He sees her in his mind's eye as she was when he left that village years ago. He never found out who she married. He had to put her completely out of his mind. It was the only way forward. He blocks his ears to the sounds of the world and concentrates on the memory. He sees her walking the mountain track, tall and proud, in front of him. He sees her on the raft with him in the mountainous waves. He sees her preparing kai on the fire, weaving parairai with harakeki for him to wear to protect his feet. He smells her smell when they slept alongside each other in the tiny bivvy. He remembers carrying her in his arms up and out of the river and onto the island. Heke and his fire are now specks on the horizon. He wonders what she is doing in these parts with Heke. Teague wonders if she wants to see him. She has never been in these parts as far as he has been aware. He would have known. He would have heard, surely. His wife has died. He wonders if her husband is dead. He is certain it is Roreka who is walking with Heke 
away from him. He looks south again. They have disappeared from sight. Teague returns to the barn, prepares his spring cart and the horse, manoeuvres out of the barn and has his horse follow the track Heke and the Roreka are taking to Reefton. He gets closer. It is Roreka for sure. The two of them have made good distance. He gets near the cemetery. The horse turns and neighs going past the cemetery, but he talks gently to her. She settles and continues on. Backdrop, isn't it? Well, I should definitely I should be wind things up really, and remember we could sit here for hours and, and chat, but I've you know we, we won't. I'm just wondering if there's anything else in here that I wanted to. Oh, look, seriously, I made oh, look, look at all these bits that are here that I that I made marks on. I've gone. Do you through. want me to read you a bit of Cleopatra? <gasps> <laughs> did you read? You, is I that the one you had? Did I you had sil- silence in the Hikoi. Um, now I thought that was interesting. So I also just given what's happened up in Parliament recently as well. I thought that was interesting. Now I thought this was interesting because I thought this was you. That last little paragraph there. Read that. This is from what poem's this one from? Uh, oh, it's part of Gypsy, isn't it? I thought to me that summed up a lot of your um, of your writing as well. You probably think I'm wrong. And. Uh, I write home every four weeks to my sister or my brothers. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they receive my letters. No, yeah, but for yeah, this one here. I'm just see how yeah, I get yeah, to yeah. there. Yeah. If I don't hear, why do I write? And I loved, I loved this. All we say here about the ghosts. Um, Is it only old ghosts pursuing me, hung out across the water? Hung out across the water. A quirky and unconditional love. But how many, how many people after sailing a hundred, a hundred plus days on a boat got here, and then for them there was certainly ghosts hanging on that water. In utter acceptance, you know. my own kind, the minutest details of myself familiar to them, the way my little toe curls under my infectious mm. laugh my wild and carefree youth my likeness to my grandmother who was a gypsy my short temper my great uncle laughing and eating bacon my quick way with words my father who was a fisherman and liked beans the birthmark on the underside of my arm my best friend's mother's death the lack of familiarity with these details of my life becomes excruciating in its absence and it's so true Mm. isn't it if you don't understand and know yourself and where all those things come from it's really hard to um, I guess to explore beyond which is what you've managed to do. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's, mm. it, that's, yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Kathleen. Well, thank you very much. That's coming here to chat with you. And, um, yeah, like I said, I could sit here and chat for hours and hours. But no, thank you for that. Let's rejoin Roraka, Murphy and Heke for the last time. Will she recognise him? Will their love story continue? Teague's heart leaps into his mouth. He wonders what he would say if it is Roreka. He hasn't felt this way for years. He bounces along in the spring cart over the ruts in the track. As he comes close to the two people walking, Teague slows down. They hear him coming behind them. They move off the track and stand to the side in the overgrown grasses to let him pass. Heke looks up and sees it as Teague. Heke calls to him. Hello, Mr O'Donnell. Teague O'Donnell nods to Heke. 
He stops the cart right beside where they are standing. Rodeka sees Teague, aged and tanned, and greying he is, but she knows his face like the back of her hand. She smiles, and light breaks through every pore of her weathered skin. Her eyes light up like stars. Teague O'Donnell's heart leaps into his mouth. Heke looks into the silence between them. He looks from Rodeka to Teague. Kia Mr O'Donnell, says Heke again. Teague doesn't respond to Heke. He looks into her eyes. I could give you a lift in the spring cart if you would like, Teague asks Rodeka. Rodeka looks at Mr O'Donnell and knows immediately it is not Mr O'Donnell, but Murphy, sitting there with his horse and spring cart, offering her a lift. The atmosphere is electric. She can barely breathe. She takes her eyes from Murphy and turns to Heke. Heke looks at Teague and then to his fire. Heke daren't utter a word. Teague has eyes only for Rureka. Neither can she take her eyes off of him. Heke looks from one to the other. He waits. Teague Murphy O'Donnell nods as if in a trance. He can't speak. He pats the seat beside him, still without saying a word. Heke looks at his fire. She is speechless. It is up to you, Mama, says Heke. She nods her agreement. Teague speaks in Māori and invites her to come home and eat with his family this evening. Mehaire, Tawa, Kite Fare o Murphy. Heke looks and wonders at his mother. Who on earth is Murphy? And where is this Murphy's house that she wants them to go to? No mai, haere mai, replies Teague. Mehaire, Tawa, says Roreka to her son, indicating that they are to climb on board the spring cart. Heke looks up at Teague. We will come with you, he says. Teague Murphy O'Donnell extends his hand to Rodeka. Rodeka takes Teague's hand as if it is the most natural thing to do. Teague helps her into his spring cart. Rodeka takes the seat beside Teague as if the seat has been waiting all these years just for her. Heke climbs up into the spring cart and sits beside her. Teague nods and takes both reins in one hand. With his free hand, he takes her hand in his. He wants her never to leave his side. He squeezes her hand lightly. She places her other hand on top of his and squeezes gently back. We're going to end this episode by listening to a series of five poems read by Kathleen Gallagher, telling of another love story between a New Zealand soldier and his Italian sweetheart. Italy. The cicadas are deafening. I have lain myself inside the noise, felt their thin lace wings unweb my face. Their antennae, like bows, their feet crisp, clawing my cheeks. I wish to dance upon the tables, 
to throw all of the food out the window and sing, to break the chairs, to hold you to my breasts. Like a firefly, I want to dart the night. How do I remove you from my thoughts? How do I take you in bits and pieces out of my heart? Like glass, shards of glass breaking into a thousand pieces in my hand. Your broken Italian accent, your tall slimness meeting mine, touching halfway down the hall. It is none of that. It is your eyes, the way they hold mine, the way your knee, your wrist brush mine. You say brokenly to forget that I will forget you in time. That we are each engaged, that you live on the other side of the world. You hold both my hands in yours. All I see are tears in your eyes. Wars are odd things. If there had been no war, I would never have met you. I would have lived my life without you. I don't care anymore. I don't care that I am engaged to marry Bernardo, the policeman in the next town. My age, good looking, all the girls after him, I don't care. You see the poplars over there, let's sit beneath them. Stay there, not go anywhere at all. I want to be at your side, to hold your hands, always. Italy, 1945. She's standing at the foot of the mountains. He's walking, she's standing. He might die on the way home. She has held his hand. He is walking on rock. She has kissed his hair, his eyes. New Zealand, Aotearoa, 1965. She is inside his eyes when he makes love. He sees her everywhere. He feels her hand on his shoulder. He walks, he walks the streets at night. He smells her in the Daphne in the winter sweet. He tells his children about the mountains, the valley, about her sisters, their house, over and over again. He tells them until they are grown tall and old as he was when he went there. Italy, 1965. She tells her daughter about the war. She tells how he came to stay one night with her family and of how he stayed. She describes the way his hands move when he cuts the bread, how his head turns slightly when he smiles, his broken Italian accent, the colour of his eyes. She doesn't know if he is living. She writes to herself to forget him. Italy, 1985. He runs his fingers through his hair that is no longer there. He takes a pack and his son and goes to the mountains searching for the village. He asks in the narrow cobbled streets on the side of the mountains. He goes to a house and thinks maybe it is the house. He walks to the village square. The church bells ringing and a woman three streets away, sees him walking. She cannot move. She stands still as the mountain. He lays down his pack and walks towards her. His steps echo in the slim, cobbled streets. Tears stream down his cheeks. He runs towards her. 
Her arms open wide as a gull's. He kisses her hair again and again. He smells all of her, all of him soft and warm and gentle as fire. She melts like mountain snow. Beautiful. Right. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the tale of Christchurch author Kathleen Gallagher. I wish to say a huge thank you to Kathleen for welcoming me into her home and sharing her story with me. Readings of Anangahua Gold were done by Zara Balara. Don't forget to subscribe to The Author's Tale for future episodes. Should you wish to know more about the authors, you can find out more on the podcast page. You have been listening to The Author's Tale, produced and presented by me, Stephanie Fruin, engineered at Plains FM and made with assistance from the Christchurch City Council and Creative Community Scheme.